what? Like, like, if you're like me and you're hearing that, like I read that for the first time Monday, and I've read it before and processed it a little bit before, but, but like to re-engage with that on Monday, I just stepped away and went, what? Right? It's a lot. And it's okay for you to go, like, that's a lot. Like, not only is it 37 verses, but just what? Like, because I woke up Tuesday and I read it again and I went, huh? Like, what am I doing with this, right? And so here's the deal. This particular chapter in Mark certainly has the potential to be one of the most confusing passages in all of Scripture, right? I mean, you can read three different commentaries, which is what I did this week, and then walk away with 10 different opinions about the details of all of this, right? So the more that you dig in to this, honestly, like the more kind of confusing it can seem at first, it's like one of those and a lot of you won't get this, but, uh, uh, but those pixel art pieces that you would find in every mall in the 90s, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just a pixelated, colored thing that you would, like, look at at first glance and appear to just be, like, a bunch of colored dots, but actually contain, like, a hidden image. But the more that you concentrated and intently stared at it, the less likely you were to see the actual picture that the artist intended, right? So it certainly raises more questions, this passage, than it does give answers, some of which is actually Jesus's intention, right? And so here's what we need to do today, right? Because there's a lot going on in here. So the commitment is this. We don't want to add to more confusion where Jesus would not want us to be confused about his words, and we want to bring more clarity to this where Jesus brings clarity. So there's a through line that we need to pay attention to that Jesus emphasizes throughout all of this. So this is apocalyptic in its tone. It's eschatological. So apocalyptic in that it appears that the language that Jesus is using here reveals that this world is swiftly coming to an end, at least the reality that we live in. And then eschatological in that it, it, it contains prophecies and predictions about like the end of times. So let me say this before we go any further then. If your understanding of eschatology concerning the end of times that we get revealed all throughout scripture, like this thing will culminate in an event, in a significant reality of, of Jesus returning. And, and so if your understanding of eschatology though creates in you anxiousness, worry, um, or some like obsession with like a predictive nature to it. Like I've got to figure out when this is like you're, you're missing the mark. Our eschatology, our understanding of how this culminates should in the beginning and in the end and everything in between, our understanding should end up with us worshiping Christ and longing for his return as he comes and ushers in his kingdom. So there's a lot in here that can be confusing, that can cause anxiousness, which is actually Jesus's point us in the opposite direction. Like he's not desiring for us to become anxious about this. So we're going to dig into this. Um, we're not going to stare then too hard at this, right? Like a lot of you are, what is you know, this man of desolation, and what is he doing? And, and, and we're not going to dig into those details today. I don't think that that's Jesus's ultimate point, because listen, the more that we demand answers from the text, I think we'll miss 
the beautiful picture that Jesus is actually painting for us. So this is Jesus's longest recorded sermon in all of Mark's gospel. It's most commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And despite, as I've mentioned, it being confusing at times, Jesus does have this one main thing that he wants us to center on that we're going to explore today. And it has deep, deep implications for us today and the global cultural moment that we find ourselves in, right? Like you start looking to some of the words that Jesus said in there, rumors of wars and wars and earthquakes and floods and nations rising up against one another. And it certainly would seem that like, did Jesus say that for this time right now? And, and we're going we're gonna to dig in and explore what that means. So um, let's start with just an overview of the chapter. And then we're going to like kind of look at it. Again, it's a hard and difficult chapter. Um, because as we try to make sense of what Jesus is saying, um, often, like I said, it, it, it leaves us wanting if we just try to dig into the, the actual details and the predictive nature of it. But um, remember, as we've seen over the last couple chapters, beginning in chapter 11, right, which is Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem for what will be his last time, most of the activity that has happened since chapter 11 and on has centered around this geographic location at the heart of the city of Jerusalem, which is the temple, right? And so that's where Jesus has been spending the majority of his time since he entered Jerusalem. He's been having then these confrontations with the Jewish religious leaders, and we've looked at those over the last couple of weeks. So by the time we get to chapter 13, Mark starts the chapter by telling us about a new conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Um, it's a quiet moment. It's away from the crowds. It's away from the bustle of the city. There's no religious leaders eavesdropping on this conversation, and this conversation is the one that sort of wraps up all of the activity and conversation and concern about the temple. And it starts here in verse 1, right? So verse 1 through 4 is kind of the opening scene, and it's still around the temple. So let's kind of look at that again. So as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, right? And so Jesus and his disciples in this scene, they're, they're, they're walking out of the temple. Um, and and this is, again, where Jesus has been experiencing these confrontations, and, and, and one of the disciples, as they're departing, and he's probably seen the temple before, but, um, and Mark doesn't tell us his name, looks back at the temple and is taken back in its awe and its beauty and its splendor, right? And rightly so. The temple would have been impressive. This is not Solomon's temple that was destroyed in 587 BC when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar rolled in, sacked the city, and leveled that temple. So construction began after that. Um, this had come to be known as Herod's temple, and it was under like a serious renovation. So Herod is not responsible for building it, but in Herod's time, he's completely redoing the temple, right? So it's a sight to see. It was ornate and opulent. It was lavished in white marble, layered with like plates of gold. It was massive. It consumed like 35 acres of prime real estate in the heart of the city. And so the sanctuary and its walls of the temple stood like 150 feet tall. It was the tallest 
structure in the city. It was the largest temple in the ancient world, and it was really a, a symbol, like the crowning achievement of human progress, right? And it was really a scene of national pride for Israel. They believed that it was the place that God himself dwelt as he lived amongst the people. And so it was of utmost significance to the people of Israel. It provided them with a sense of security and safety, right? It was so impressive to them. And knowing that it was the place that God dwelled, they believed that it was indestructible, even though they, in their history it had already been destroyed, right? So in, in, in fact, most people had come to believe that there was no way that this temple could ever fall. So this disciple is completely amazed, right? Um, and, and he wants Jesus to be amazed at this sight also, right? Like, just look at the beauty of this. And, and so he stops and he's like, hey, Jesus, look at this, right? So this is actually kind of a, a funny moment here because look at Jesus's response. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? And the disciples like, well, yeah, I just told you to turn around and look at them, Jesus, right? Well, Jesus says, well, there will be not one left, or there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is like, yeah, this building is great. It's fantastic. It's incredibly impressive. And the whole thing's just going to burn. It's going to topple, right? And the disciples, of course, they're stunned at this. Nobody expected this. The, this temple was a symbol of God's presence and power. And Jesus says, just like that, it's going to be destroyed. And so Jesus, in this statement, is predicting a near future event. So that's one of the things that becomes incredibly confusing about this passage is Jesus talking about near future events that might take place in the disciples' lifetimes, or is he talking about some other, you know, future events? And so that's where, um, and he really, as we'll see, like flips back and forth between the two, right? So because um, it's, it's incredibly difficult to tell, right? Jesus is talking about the looming destruction of the temple that will come in 70 AD, right? Um, but we sit here and go like, or is he talking about the end of the world, right? So um, he's talking about the siege of Jerusalem. Um, it will happen in the immediate future, right? But then there's still language riddled throughout here where we're like, but is he also talking about God's final day of judgment? And, and the answer to those questions is, yes, right? It's, it's, it's yes. Jesus is talking about both. And there's some debate on the details. Um, and that's where, again, the confusion can come from. You can read three different pieces and come out with so many different opinions about specifically where Jesus is transitioning in his language. And, and so that's not Jesus's point here, though, right? Um, most people do agree that Jesus is sometimes referring to what will immediately happen, and then other times he's referring to the end of time. And Mark gives us, I think, a little bit of a clue to which is which, and so it has to do with the phrase in these days and in those days, so we'll try to bring a little bit of clarity to it, so when you read it for understanding. But when Jesus says, like, these days, he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, right? That's in verses 1 through 13 and verses 28 through 31. But when Jesus says those days or that day, he's talking about this apocalyptic kind of event that will happen. He's talking about the end of time and reality as we know it, one that will usher in his shalom-filled kingdom. And so that's like 14 through 27, 32 through 37, and you can see the shift 
start to happen in verse 32. Jesus says in verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. That's like one of the most controversial verses in here, because if Jesus means either one, people would point to that to say, well, none of this has come true, right? And so Jesus is not true in his depiction of what's going to happen. So, but I think it actually shows and reveals what Jesus is up to through it. So he's talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but in verse 32, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. So here he's talking about the end of time. So there's a shift where he's talking about the near future, and then a verse later, he's talking about this apocalyptic reality. So, and the reason that Jesus talks about both of these together is because the destruction of the temple in the immediate future is the foreshadowing of the coming judgment of the end of time. And so, so one way to say it is this. These days of impending destruction is a picture of those days that will come later. Now, with all that being said, Jesus' main concern in the passage is not the details of what will happen or how it will happen, and certainly it's not the timeline of when it will happen. Instead, Jesus' main concern in this is that his disciples persevere through whatever suffering they face, and they persevere in view of his return. So that is what Jesus wants for us as his disciples. And he tells us to do this with this very like simple construct or this very simple idea, which is this. He says, stay awake, right? And he repeats that. So we persevere through tribulation. We persevere through suffering with the end of the world on its way by staying awake. That's how it all fits together. And, and here is where we can start kind of digging in. Like, look at the strict warnings at the end of the chapter, verses 32 through 36. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, right? So there's this reality of like, don't predict it because nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So then he goes into it. What does he say? He says, be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Be vigilant, therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of this house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So that's the most significant that thing that Jesus wants us to walk out of here understanding, right? So a couple things to think about. What does it mean to stay awake or to be on guard? And more importantly, why? Well, Jesus gives us two reasons here in this, right? Basically, it's this. Stay awake because of what you know, okay? So that kind of makes sense. Like, we have information. We can understand some things. But then he also is kind of saying stay awake because of what you don't know, right? And, and those are more like like categories instead of points here today. So let's just kind of start with the first and we'll kind of walk through this. So stay awake because of what you know. Well, for this category, Jesus tells us like three important facts about reality, right? What will happen? What does this look like? Well, what is certain, despite the confusion of some of this passage, is this. The bad will get worse, false teaching will spread, 
and he's coming back to gather his people, right? So we can see those things in this passage. Those are things that we know that Jesus is saying is going to happen. So let's look at this. The bad will get worse, right? That's verse 19. For in those days, there will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be, right? So Jesus is talking about the future, and again, although there's some debate about exactly what he has in mind here, one thing is clear is it's not going to be pleasant. There's going to be severe human suffering and despair, and it's going to feel like chaos and mayhem. And, and I know, like right away, like we have this instinct in us to define and figure this out, like it's some secret like code, right? We, we want to figure out what Jesus is talking about, when it's going to happen, so we can like start taking out billboards along I-5 saying the end of the world is coming on this date, but that's not what Jesus is trying to accomplish here for us, right? It's easy for us to imagine that, that all of this must be some faraway terrible experience, like we're all heading towards this like dystopian future that Jesus is predicting. Guys, I'm so excited Mad Max is finally going to come true, right? But just for a little perspective here, for us, right? Because it might feel like for us as Americans, yeah, there's some impending doom, but for perspective, like we should realize that we are in the minority experience when it comes to persecution from like the world directed at the church. Like we should remember this, right? Since Jesus said these words, a lot of generations of faithful followers of Jesus have experienced life and flourishing and, and also persecution and, and suffering, right? They've lived through atrocious circumstances. So, so to kind of predict because of these words that, oh, this must be the time, we just have to keep history in mind and present reality in mind. There are people today that are experiencing tribulation because they are the church far worse than we ever have or ever will, right? So, is there going to be a coming future tribulation period? Well, millions of Christians around the world would say today, like, we're already in it. Like, we've been in it, right? Um, and, and so, look, with, without getting into those details, I, I just want us to get this principle here, right? It's that either way you dice it up, what is bad will get worse before the end comes. So at its most basic level, right, the sinful, oppressive parts of our culture, they'll never evolve to become, like, less bad. Like, sometimes I think we assume it will. I think sometimes we've picked up a bad case of, like, evolutionary theory in regards to, like, social morality, right? And, and I, like, I think that we can think that, right? And it makes sense. And I think we just go, like, oh, if we just give it more time. Like, if we just put humanity in the pressure cooker of this world, like somehow we'll just become better. And, and somehow all the evil and the oppression and injustice will just resolve itself, right? It will resolve itself. Like somehow human progress and achievement will just make evil extinct. And that sounds optimistic, but it's just not true. And it's actually dangerous for us to think that. C.S. Lewis writes this in The Great Divorce. He says, evil can be undone, and so we should fight for that. We should seek justice and righteousness and undo the evil in us and in the world where we can. But then he says, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. And that's true for the evil in our society and for the evil in our own hearts. Leaving it alone does not work, right? Now, 
that means this. It means that we cannot be passive. We cannot be passive to the injustices in our world, and we cannot be passive to the sin and the evil that exists in ourselves. So, so if we're not passive, like if we're not just stepping back, like this is not a call. Do not hear me wrong here. This is not a call for the church to step back and wait with our hands folded for the world to just burn, right? That's not what this is. So if we're not passive, what are we? Well, we're what Jesus says we are to be here. We're awake. Like, stay awake because we know that the bad is going to get worse, right? And then the next thing is this, like, false teaching will spread. So that's verse 21 and 22. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Okay, so in the future, Jesus says, hey, He's talking to his disciples. Keep that in context. He says, listen, in, in the near immediate future and then into the future, there's going to be rampant deception coming at the church. He says that these false messiahs and these false prophets are going to rise up and they're going to try to deceive the world. But even more importantly, and if possible, they're going to try to deceive the elect, right? So he's talking about the church, right? Those who have trusted and believed in him, those who have submitted already to King Jesus's authority in their lives, who are now new creations in Christ, the church will be, it will be, we will be attacked by false teaching, right? And this might be easiest for us to see today, right? It's the situation that we are in today. There are false teachers everywhere outside of the church, but even more alarming inside the walls of the church, right? And there's ideologies that are rampant, that seem appealing at first, but are nothing but false teaching, right? And it's creeping its way into the church. Like, I've seen it. I've seen it take place, specifically over this past couple of years, right? It's become apparent. And, and, and when you sit across from somebody that is a part of the church, and you hear them say, well, the, the gospel is simply not powerful enough to solve this problem, like that's a false ideology and a false teaching that we should be on guard and vigilant about. Now, this is nothing new, like, because shortly after Jesus said this, like, within the first century, within the inception of the church, most of the New Testament letters, like, when you read through them, Paul and the other authors, what are they most concerned with? They're concerned with, and they address false teaching that had already infiltrated the church. So it's nothing new. So, so you can kind of see how Jesus is both addressing the immediate future for these disciples, those that live through this, and then to us today, to be vigilant, to be on guard, because false teaching will always come and attack the church, right? That is a significant thing. It's one of the main reasons that we have this office of eldership in the church, is to be on guard against false doctrines, to guard the doctrine of the gospel closely, right? That's what elders are for. And, and so we've got to stay vigilant because deception is coming for us. False teaching and, and false anything is trying to infiltrate its way into our churches all the time, and in so many places, it's already there. And so we've got to be on guard. We, we all need to stay awake, right? Yes, it's the task of elders, but it's the task of every single follower of Jesus to be awake and stay vigilant against false teaching because it spreads like wildfire. The next thing is this, Jesus is coming back to gather his people. That's verses 24 through 27. 
It says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So this whole part here, verse 24 through 27, it's just like loaded and riddled with all of these Old Testament allusions, right? And so it gets confusing at times. And this is where we want to deal with this a, a little bit today. Like this is great for like academic research and, and y'all should dig into this. So we're gonna deal with some of this, but not too deeply because we wanna keep again, the main through line of being on guard and staying awake. That's what Jesus is really trying to get to here. So we got this phrase, like verse 26, right? It's taken straight from the book of Daniel. The Son of Man will come in clouds with great power and glory. That's a parallel there from 713. So you've got 713 on the bottom there, right? So it's lifted straight from Daniel. And unmistakably here, by Jesus saying this, like we have to see this. This is the most important thing that Jesus is saying. He's claiming and proving to be the Messiah. And not just of suffering, but also of glory. He is the son of man that Daniel mentions that will come in the clouds, right? So remember that Jesus has been saying up to now, the whole time in the gospel of Mark, he's told his disciples, right, that he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to end up in Jerusalem. And the purpose that he's going to end up in Jerusalem is that he is going to die. He has come to the city to be killed, right? But, but here he says this, one day I'm coming back. I'm returning in this like apocalyptic splendor, which means this. And this is where the good news is that the Son of Man, who will be marred beyond recognition, stripped of any fame, left with no dignity, betrayed and beaten, spit upon and disgraced, pierced and broken, dead on a Roman cross in just a few days from uttering these words, he will one day be the sovereign king of power and glory, and he will return for his bride, the church. And in the book of Daniel, where Jesus quotes this coronation, this is like a coronation passage. It's about when the Messiah is given his kingdom, God's Messiah will be given all dominion over creation. And in Daniel, that looks like all people and nations and languages serving him. That's the very next verse, verse 14, which is the same thing that's happening in Mark chapter 13, right? The Son of Man, Daniel says, will return in glory. And then he says that all people's nations and language will be serving him and worshiping him. And then you get to Mark and look at what, Dan, look what Jesus claims. Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to come back and he's going to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. This is so important. Notice the vast diversity and array of people that belong to King Jesus. This is people from the four winds. This is people from every conceivable direction that there is, all converging on one single point, that is King Jesus. So Jesus is an exclusive Savior with universal importance that magnifies his power and his glory. There is nobody like him, and he is everyone's only hope. And I believe, despite 
how horrible it feels at this moment that the whole world is actually trending towards this realization. Creation is groaning and revealing King Jesus, and his church must be on guard and stay awake and be vigilant with the gospel and faithful to the mission Jesus has a church for. And so we have to use our imaginations here, right? But think about this. The Apostle John, he gives us a little glimpse of what this will be like in Revelation 5. There will be this massive assembly of people, men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and every nation. When you hear the word nation in the Old Testament, think ethnicity. That's what God is referring to, right? So think ethnicity. So from every tribe, every ethnicity on the face of the earth, So it's going to be this incredibly diverse situation. It's going to be incredibly loud and celebratory and everybody together with all of our distinct beauty and amazing differences. We are going to sing one song because we worship one king and he's the king who died for us. He's the king who shed his blood to bring us together, to bring us to him. We will be together to worship our one king, and his name is Jesus. So Jesus is really coming back. This will happen. The second coming of Jesus is the most pervasive and repeated truth in the New Testament. And and think this, the early church did not, just for this adds a little bit of confusion, but some clarity. The early church did not preach rapture they preached resurrection. They preached a Christ and a king resurrected, and they preached Jesus coming back, and they preached resurrection. So he will return for his church, and the dead will come to life in Christ. Man, the Christian life, what, what Christ calls us to then, that is what we do until that glorious day is revealed and happens. And we're not called to live in anxiousness or fear of that day or worry for that day. Instead, we should long and call for that day out. As a people, we should demand of our God to fulfill his covenant promise to us and return, just like the people of Israel did. God, would you return? Would you come and make all things new? And so the Christian life, that is what we do until that day is revealed. And what does that require? that we depend on and preach the gospel for salvation, that we stay awake, stay awake because you know. And and then, then Jesus gives us this whole other second category. Stay awake because of what you don't know, right? This is actually the crux of the passage here. Notice down in verse 32 and 33, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows not even angels in heaven. Now listen, there have been a lot of people in history that have tried to predict the end of the world to like unbelievable embarrassment, right? (laughs) Over and over again. And Jesus is saying like, don't even try because you don't know. Angels in heaven don't know. I don't know. Only the Father knows. So be on guard, keep awake for you do not know when that time will come. That's about as plain as it gets. I don't know how anybody could read this and go, So from here, I'm going to start trying to predict a date when Jesus is going to return based on world events, right? Jesus gives chaos, right? It's confusing. Rumors of war and false teachers and floods and earthquakes. And for us in this cultural moment, how would we not think Jesus is coming back right now? 
But the strongest thing that we take out of there is like, hey, don't, like just chill on that. Like just don't pay attention to that, but pay attention to other things. Like stay awake and be vigilant for the gospel because I don't know when it's gonna happen, so you're never gonna know, right? I don't know how it can get any more clear, but know this, I will return right? And if it's not clear enough, Jesus says it again in verse 34, right? This time he tells this little parable about a man that goes on a journey, and he, and he leaves servants in charge, but, but he doesn't tell them when he's going to return. And therefore, they need to be always ready. They need to be vigilant. He could come back at any moment, right? So stay awake. He tells them, right? And there's all this other language in here. It's confusing. Like, remember the temple, right? The temple, the key to national pride, the key to who they were as a people. So Jesus points to, and there's language about like fleeing the city in there, like hopefully it's not winter, right? Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying like all of these institutions, right? All of the, the temple, the city itself, right? The place that you believe God dwells, none of those things will create safety or give you peace or guarantee your life. So flee those things. Don't turn to those things. Trust the one thing that you can trust in all of this, which is me, and that I will return. So the question is, like, how difficult is this? And if I'm being honest, man, as I struggle through this all week, like, when I see this, man, it sounds, like, super intimidating, right? Like, this is a lot to deal with. That's because, like, I can't help but read Jesus' words here, honestly, like, as a sleep-deprived human, <laughs> right? Like, I know what it's like to be tired, and you all know what it's like, right? Listen, I promise I'm not going to milk this, like, COVID thing for too long with my illustrations. Like, eventually I'll get back to pop culture references and mountain biking, but just think about, it, like, I recently in my history know what it's like to be sleep-deprived. Like, man, my first week of quarantining with this thing, I got stuck in a, in a rut of, like, I couldn't stay awake during the day. I was so tired for, like, two or three days, right? And so I would like fall asleep for way too long. Like this wasn't a nap. I was taking a coma. I was in it. But then I would wake up and I would struggle to fall asleep. That, so like I just got stuck in this rut of being super tired. And so like we know what that's like. If you're a parent of young kids, you know what that's like. It's brutal, right? Or if you're a student, sometimes it's just brutal to stay awake. But when Jesus says to be on guard or to stay awake, we need to see this. Like he's using something physical that we can all re like relate to. We all understand what that means, right? But he's using it as, as a metaphor for something so much deeper than that. Jesus' command to stay awake is warning against like spiritual preoccupation and distraction. Jesus means to stop putting your spiritual life at the bottom of your list. Stop trying to just fit Jesus in only when he's convenient for you. Stop treating the Christian life like it's just a bunch of joyless rules to follow. When Jesus says stay awake, he means to be vigilant about his reality and the truth of who he is. Don't lose sight on the meaning of this world. Don't loosen your grip on God's purpose for you. Be awake to what it is. And that's the point. And this is where it's so relevant for us. Jesus tells us to stay awake because unless we're awake, unless we're paying attention, we will crowd our lives with things that, meet, that just simply make Jesus seem less real and less powerful than he is. Like, that's our greatest problem. Like, I'm more convinced than now than ever that, that our greatest problem when it comes 
to how we relate to Jesus is just simply we give so much of our heart and life to these things that distract us. But the reality is we're supposed to bring all of those things to Jesus. Like when we carry our burdens by ourselves, like they keep us from seeing Jesus and they just get heavier. Like they start to eclipse the realness of Jesus. They, they drown out the music of his grace. And Jesus is saying like, hey, don't let that happen. Wake up. So what do we do? Like, okay, Jesus, I want to wake up. I want to be awake. But what about when I'm not? Like, is there good news when we become spiritually sleepy? Which can be all of us at times, right? Like, I mean, I wish like we could all just have a switch that we could just flip on and like keep on. Like, I'm always passionate about Jesus. I'm always reading the Bible. I'm always praying. I'm, like, I, I just know how this works, and I always do it. But, but that's just not true because we become weary at times, right? And we become spiritually exhausted at times, and we become spiritually malnourished at times. Like, I've been praying, but it feels like God doesn't hear. I've been trying to move in the right direction, but the trouble just doesn't leave I've made some mistakes and I can't get past the guilt. I'm lonely, I'm smothered by shame, and I want to be awake, but I don't know how. Like all of us probably experience that in our lives, but I've got good news, right? Because even though we will slumber and sleep at times, I love Jesus. There's this proverb, right? I love this illustration. There's a proverb, it's um, chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. And listen, it's totally about something else, right? It's different context. But the story is like a father talking to a son and warning a son against like laziness and not being productive. So there's a warning to essentially stay awake. And I love this Proverbs 6, 10, and 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And what does that result in? Like disaster, right? And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So all it takes, like I love this illustration because sleep is actually like peaceful and like hopefully it's easy for us to just fall into sleep and it's it's restful and so this like this reality jesus is warning us to to not have a little sleep a little slumber a little folding of our hands because it will result in disaster for us so it's a different context but it's the same warning but the good news is this the bible tells us that jesus will never slumber or never sleep in fact, the Bible says that Jesus upholds us and keeps us at every moment by his power. He's promised to always be with us. He promises to never change. He is our sufficiency. He is supreme above all. And those burdens that we carry are burdens that he can take. Listen, I don't know about you. I can only speak for myself. But if I'm honest, this past year, there are times where I would say that my faith was beaten down and about as small as a mustard seed. Times where I would step back and go, not that I don't believe, but I just don't know where I'm at with this, and I don't know how to feel about this, and I don't know where to go with this. And I look to this, and I go, Jesus sustained me through that. The small amount of faith at times that I could muster to like give energy to life and family and this, Man, it was so minimal at times, and yet I look to the sufficiency of Christ who saw me through this, who holds us together through this. So trust him and stay awake, right? Cast your anxieties on him and stay awake. Stay awake 
Because you need Jesus to be who he is. That's how we see the reality of that. We know Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. Like, the reality is, I don't like to say this kind of stuff often, but like, yeah, today could be the last. Like, we don't know. But that's less important than be ready. Like, don't try to predict it. Just be ready. Stay awake. Don't be filled with anxiety. Don't be restless. Don't be frantic. Don't be fearful. But be alive to the gospel truth. Be awake to the realness of Christ because Jesus is real and one day we're going to see him. And I think as we go, as we prepare our hearts to receive and worship King Jesus, as we get to go to this table here in a moment, I think that the table is meant to say just that. The Apostle Paul says that when we eat the bread and we drink of the cup, we are proclaiming the truth of the Lord's death until he returns. Right? So in going to the table, we go to remember that Jesus died for us, but we also go to celebrate and anticipate and cry out for his return. And so in one way, the table is like a weekly wake-up call to us. This table brings us back to the reality of Jesus, and it helps us to stay awake.